John chapter 7. In talking about that living water, this is what Jesus has said he was. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood where all the people could hear him and he shouted out to them. The words that we're going to read again from last week, verses 37 through 39, but then we're going to read it on and, and finish the rest of this chapter. But everything that Jesus did now from, from the time that we saw him speaking in, in, at the Pool of Bethesda and healing the, uh, the lame man on the Sabbath, Antagonism has been rising against him. Not just by the things that he said, but by the things that he did. And yet Jesus continues to declare himself as the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah. As we read in verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, and if you remember, that word cry there meant that he just shouted at the top of his lungs. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that, that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Shall we pray? Father, it is our deepest desire today that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might have your wisdom and understanding, Lord, of these words and of the things, Lord, that you want us to understand from your word today. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Fill us, baptize us, and immerse us, saturate us in your spirit today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some things in life that you can be neutral about, but Jesus is not one of them. Yet many people in our country are still trying to be neutral about Jesus. Many claim that Jesus was a good man, maybe even a great man. But that was a long time ago and in another time. And it has nothing to do with how they live their lives today. And it doesn't require that they go to church, <coughs> excuse me, much less belong to a church. In fact, what man what many say is, you don't have to go to church to believe in Jesus. 
Well, that may be true. Consider for a moment the words of Jesus himself. Words we find in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, when Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. He that is not with me is against me. In effect, Jesus was saying that neutrality to him is really opposition to him. If you say that you're neutral about Jesus and you're not taking sides, you've just taken a side. Please understand that. To decide for God, to decide for God, one must decide for Jesus. In an invisible cosmic war, now let me explain that statement. In an invisible cosmic war, what, what we need to understand is, is, is what Paul said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talked about the armor of God. And he said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in, in spiritual places. Things that we cannot see. That war is going on even in this place today. So in that invisible cosmic war, there are no spectators, you see. No spectators at all. Ultimately, everyone lines up on one side or the other. The implication is to be careful which side you choose. Now in verse 43 of our text, John reports this to us. He says, so there was a division among the people because of Jesus. There was a division among the people because of him. Compare this now to what Jesus would say to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, when he says, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, Two against three, the father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That is a very sharp statement that Jesus is making about the very fact that when he comes to this earth, as he did, it brought about this kind of division. And I'm sure you've heard about drawing a line in the sand, right? You've heard people go out there and, you know, they go, you're either on that side or you're with me on this side, you see. Drawing a line in the sand. Moses and Joshua did so figuratively with the children of Israel. After the golden calf incident with Moses, right? You're a line in the sand. You're going to be worshiping idols, you stay over there. On this side, you come to worship the one true God. Or Joshua, when he said toward the end of his life, choose you this day whom you will serve. There's a dividing line, you see. 
Whether you will serve the gods across the other side of the river or you'll serve the one true God. Well, faith in Jesus has always been and will continue to be a dividing line in the world. In parts of the world today where Christianity is not the predominant faith, it is very much so that way. In countries in which Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam are the predominant religions, to come to faith in in Christ Jesus often means being disowned by their very family. And this includes even some sects of Judaism. And it's getting to be that way in our country today. Now more than ever, Jesus brings division to everyday life. For an example, let me just say that we could be in stores, we can be in schools, workplaces, talking about the weather, politics, education, sports, even entertainment events. And at some point, some, someone says that their life has really been made different because of Jesus Christ. And immediately, <laughs> silence and nervous shuffling takes place. At the mere mention of the name of Jesus, one person walks away. Another person looks at their watch and they says, oh, you know, I've got to go. And then another person who has no pets at all would say, I better go feed my dog. You get the picture? Mere mention of Jesus brings division to life. In John chapter 7, Jesus had been teaching at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles and had made a a big impression on some of the people. But it certainly wasn't unanimous. There was a division among the people because of him. The profound sadness of this division means that there are those who choose not to believe in Jesus and by that decision reject the only means of being saved for eternity. What is revealed to us in this passage are at least three kinds of unbelief. Now bear with me because we're going to hear things that sound much like belief, but, but, but please, bear with me. What we see revealed in this passage are at least three kinds of unbelief. First of all, there are those who choose to believe some of Christ's claims. That's verse 40. There are those who choose to believe only on an intellectual level. That's verse, the beginning of verse 41. And there are those who choose to reject Jesus entirely. That's verse 41, the second part of it, all the way to verse 53. So we're going to first of all look at choosing to believe only some of Christ's claims. By looking at verse 40, it says, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Now see, just on that reading alone, you would say, well, that sounds right, isn't it? Because if you understand who Messiah is according to the Scriptures, you realize that one of his offices is that of a prophet. So it sounds good. 
But it is of utmost significance that the Apostle John points out what the people had just heard Jesus say. See, what does verse 40 say? Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, what saying? What Jesus just shouted, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But we're told that some of the listeners were sure that Jesus was the prophet. And while the truth is that the Messiah was indeed to be the prophet prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, and we're going to go there in just a moment, Listen to what it says about that prophet. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. Uh, this is Moses speaking. Unto him you shall hearken. To this prophet you shall listen. But then in verse 18 it says, Speaking as a mouthpiece of God, Moses said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. But what we have to understand is that it was also believed by the Jews that there would be a prophet whom they expected to precede the coming of Messiah as mentioned in Matthew chapter 16. So go to Matthew 16. This is of utmost importance for us today to see this connection here. And in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, and I want you to see this, this, this scenario here. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? Can you understand the question? He says, I want you to tell me who everybody say and I am. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, listen to what his disciples said to Jesus. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Who, by the way, was considered a prophet. Why? Because he knew what his role was to come proclaim the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. Some say that you are Elijah. And others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. They had plenty of prophets to think about. Would be the prophet that would come before the Messiah. Now look at verse 15. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? How strong that question is. Whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The right answer, the perfect answer, 
But do you now see the great significance of Peter's answer? In light of what we're studying in John 7? And the importance of realizing why Jesus asked, Who do the people say that I am? The others thought that Jesus was just a prophet, albeit a resurrected one, or would be, but not the Messiah. Not the Messiah. Like many people today, these believe Jesus to be a great prophet, but not the Son of God. Now there is an interesting perspective to understand here, and that is that even Muslims today believe Jesus to be a prophet. But is he Messiah? Peter said, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah of Israel, the Son of the living God. And so, a partial faith is not a saving faith. A partial faith is not a saving faith. Secondly, there are those that choose only to believe intellectually. There is a certain level of belief that only rises to the intellect. And we see that in verse 41, the very first part of verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. We've seen him do things, we've heard him say things with great authority. This is the Christ. For these others to say this is the Christ, it might make them sound like true believers, but not necessarily. In fact, if we think for a moment, we understand that just the knowledge of the facts about Jesus and even believing the facts on a completely intellectual level to be true does not save a person. Just to believe it in your head does not save you. You do understand that. From the scriptures, because we know what it is that saves us. You shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You shall believe in your heart that he has risen from the dead, and you shall be saved. Many people have grown up in Christian homes, attended good, sound Bible-believing churches, gone to church camps and retreats, attended youth groups of all sorts and and, and sizes, in fact, they've had every spiritual advantage and yet have never come to trust Jesus Christ wholeheartedly as their Lord and Savior. I'll give you one quick example that I didn't mention last night, but I, I want to mention today. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the, of the, of the late uh, 19th century, was one who would have, would have said that that's my testimony. I grew up, he grew up with his, with his uh, preacher grandfather. I mean, he grew up in his home, read all his books, read the Bible every day, prayed every day. But as a young teenager, went into a church on a snowy day. He didn't even get to the church he was going to. Went into a, a different kind of church, and it was there that God saved him. After all those years of growing up in a Christian home. Some people today can quote Bible verses and can believe them all to be true and still be lost. You might say that, uh, that that's kind of a terribly high standard, isn't it? 
wow, they've read the Bible. They know the words. They, they know the songs. They lift their hands. and They're not saved? That's a tremendously high standard. But listen to the words of Jesus. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 5 now because you need to see this. Matthew chapter 5. And in verse 20, I'll give you the background of this in just a moment. Jesus said to his disciples and to the large crowd that was listening to him on the hill called uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, he said, for I say unto you that except your righteousness, notice, except that your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You talk about a high standard? Jesus just raised the bar about a thousand feet. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were all about righteousness, wasn't it? But what kind? What kind? Outward. Outward righteousness. Jesus talked about it. About those that would go out into the streets dressed piously, dressed, you know, the phylacteries, the, bo- the little boxes on their heads with the scriptures written inside, saying their prayers loud so everybody could say, my, what a, what a righteous man. But what did Jesus say about them? He says, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, on the outside you have all of this beautiful, you know, pious covering, but on the inside you're just dead men's bones. You're empty. You're a, you're a whitewashed tomb. They knew all the words. Sang all the songs. So the question is, who then can be saved? You see, as, as for the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, because as I've talked about the Pharisees before, when they began about 200 years before the birth of Christ on this earth, they, they began with a, with a real desire you know, to bring the people back to the Word of God, to bring people back to righteousness in the heart. But it went from the heart to the head. Because by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, their orthodox heads were married to a rebellious heart. And remember that this verse was preceded, this verse that I just read to you in verse 20 was preceded by the Beatitudes, which are the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. And what are they? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, in other words, are they that realize that inside of us we are destitute without Christ. We're empty and dead and lifeless without Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves. So Jesus already laid down the foundation that we ourselves have come to a place where we have to recognize our sinfulness, recognize our emptiness. Because remember what the, what the hallmarks are? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, to be exalted, you must humble yourself. 
And the Pharisees never humbled themselves as a whole. And this is why Jesus was so strong about their Pharisaical leanings. You see, just having an intellectual belief in Jesus Christ and the truth is challenged strongly in a small epistle, the epistle of James. I I would ask you to turn there in James chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Even so faith. Notice what, what, what James says here. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. He speaks of a faith that is dead. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. But get verse 19, if you will. Thou believest that there is one God? Doesn't that tell us immediately, doesn't that tell us that he's speaking to the, to the Jewish mindset? Because James was a Jew. And he's speaking to his own people, and he says to them, You believe that there's one God? Thou doest well, because there really is only one God. And this is what God has given us to proclaim to the whole world. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Notice the next phrase. The devils also believe and tremble. So when you come up to that level of of faith or level of belief, which we would say is is kind of only up to a mental ascent, then you've only gotten as good as the, the devils. You've only risen up to the level of the devils. The level of the devil. Or the demons. As far as you come. But it tells us the devils tremble. And I think it is sad that in the church of Jesus Christ today, While the devils believe and tremble, some say they believe, but they don't tremble. They don't tremble at the holiness of God. They don't tremble at an awesome God who is high above all things, who the angels themselves say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We treat him like he's our our buddy and our pal. The man upstairs, we call him sometimes. May I say to you that intellectual acceptance is not saving faith. Intellectual acceptance is not saving faith. Rising only to the level of the devils is not saving faith. Thirdly, there were those that chose to reject Christ entirely. In verse 41, it says, Others said, This is the Christ, but some said, Notice this, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said, 
that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him. In other words, they would have arrested him, but no man laid hands on him because, you see, his time had not yet come. And then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. And then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hears him, and know what he doeth? And they answered, and they said to Nicodemus, Art thou also of Galilee? That was an insult, folks. They were insulting Nicodemus. Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. You see, some questioned if Jesus could be the Messiah knowing that he lived in Galilee and therefore assumed that he was born there. They knew he had grown up in Nazareth, but had they cared enough to check the facts? See, I think that that's one of the problems we have in in our day and time is people just don't want to check the facts. They'll check Wikipedia about all kinds of other things, but they refuse to really check the facts. If they had checked the facts about Jesus, they would have found that he was actually born where? In Bethlehem. And that he was indeed from the tribe of Judah and of the lineage of David. If they had just checked the facts. And they had all the facts at their disposal. All the facts, if they wanted to know, they could have found right there in the temple itself. But sometimes people make up their minds before they have all the facts. Just consider the presidential uh, primaries. That's for another day. Too many people today allow misinformation to block their view of Jesus. Too many people today allow misinformation to block their view. Of Jesus. The words of Jesus in chapter 5. Now remember, chapter 5 and chapter 7 have been linked over the last few weeks that we've been studying this chapter 7 because of what had happened when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and he healed him on the Sabbath day. Isn't, isn't that an incredible thing that here Jesus helps a person and actually changes his whole physical and physiological makeup so that he could get up and walk and take his bed out from where he was. And, and rather than hear the praises unto God, all that he heard were, were, the, were the shouts of blasphemy because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. So the words of Jesus then in chapter 5 should have been burning deep in their hearts and haunting their hearts. Listen, go back to 5 for just a moment and look at verses 37 through 40. Because here it says, And the Father himself, which has sent me, 
have borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you, for whom he has sent him. Ye believe not. Search the scriptures. Listen to this. Search the scriptures, he says to them. Literally what he said was, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. See, you go around and you look and you search the scriptures and you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, but they're testifying of me. They're pointing to me. And you will not come to me. Notice it doesn't say you cannot come to me. It says you will not come to me that you might have life. That would have been haunting to some of these people, having heard him back then. But now, the temple police who had been appointed to take Jesus into custody arrived just in time to hear Jesus speaking and shouting to the people, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And while standing around waiting for the opportune time to arrest him, they were astonished by what they heard. The men returned from their duty, but without Jesus. And when asked to give an explanation of their failure, they actually gave a clear and yet a very unexpected testimony. What was the testimony? Never man spake like this man. We've never heard anyone speak like this man speaks. For he speaks with the authority of God. Like no one else has. And this just angered the religious leaders even more. That certain tactics came out. <laughs> the tactics of the rejectors. That still happen today. I want you to notice that this news was not well received <laughs> because what they did was then ridicule these temple officers. Ridicule is a tactic of the rejecter. John 7 verse 47, then answered them the Pharisees, are you also deceived? They're ridiculing him. Don't tell me you've been deceived too. It is apparent by their question that the Pharisees were afraid that the officers had become so thoroughly convinced by what they had heard that they had become followers of Jesus now. So they began with ridicule and immediately went on to peer pressure. That happens today. Especially on college campuses. Toward young people that have come out of churches and go to college, you know, with, you know, kind of uh, very uh, uh, high expectations about learning more about things and stuff. And then the first thing they hear is from a college professor that tells them, you know, that they're ignorant and stupid if they believe in Jesus Christ. They're ridiculed. And then they're put under a lot of peer pressure because people have bought into this idiocy. 
Well, the Pharisees use peer pressure too. Look at, verses four, look at verse 40, 48. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? You see any of us believing in him? That's peer pressure. Do you see any of the rulers or the Pharisees believing in this Jesus? The implication of their question is that no educated or intelligent person would believe in this Jesus, which sounds like most liberal, atheistic, and evolutionistic college professors. If the religious leaders do not believe in Jesus, then anyone with any sense won't believe in him either. You see. As I implied... It is still a tactic used by the enemy today to make it appear that education and intelligence cannot be found in the same person that has faith. That's a pretty broad stroke, isn't it? Somebody needs to re-educate some of these college professors and remind them that some of the greatest scientists that ever lived and, and laid the foundation for much of what we see happening today were all believers. Or most of them were anyway. Many of them were. A third tactic that we see that the Pharisees used is calling those who believe ignorant. And we see that in verse 49. But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Those that, that, that don't know the law, they're, they're just a curse. And to say that they're a curse means, well, they're a curse because of their ignorance. And this is, in fact, an insult directed at all believers, by the way. This people, that, that phrase, this people, can be translated as riffraff or the unknowing mob. They were saying that the common people, not knowing the scriptures, are confused. But, by the way, that, that, that's, that's really an indictment on, on themselves. You know why? Because they're called the teachers of the law. They're the teachers, but all their students are idiots, you know. Hello, teachers. Wake up. It is a terrible thing when one thinks themselves either too intelligent or too good to need Jesus. And I'm, it's sad to say that that's even found in the church today. Of people saying that they're just too intelligent or too good to need. And let me say, the Jesus of the Bible. And that's still happening today. In the middle of all this unbelief is one word of defense. It was... A relatively weak defense, but nonetheless it was a defense by a man named Nicodemus that we met back in chapter 3 who came by night to ask Jesus some questions and Jesus told him, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, this Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, does our law judge any man? Before it hear him and know what he doeth? And they answered and said unto him, Are you also of Galilee? <laughs> they insulted him. 
Because the leaders all believed that those who lived up in the northern region of, 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 of Israel, in, in the Galilee area, being common people, they were just ignorant people. They didn't live down in Jerusalem where the law was being taught in all of these semin seminaries and, and places of, uh, you know, the synagogues and the temple and all of that. So they were just unlearned people. See, are you also of Galilee? And then they said this, search and look. For out of Galilee arises no prophet, and every man went unto his own house. Verse 53, actually, we'll, we'll talk about when we get to chapter 8. But in a very gentle way, it appears that Nicodemus spoke up for Christ by, by charging the leaders with, with breaking the law themselves and suggesting that they hear Christ and observe his works closely. And here's the thing. They hadn't been listening to Jesus. They hadn't been searching things out from the Word of God. They hadn't been searching what they could have been searching to find out who he was. Which would, as I said earlier, would have easily been done if they had gone to check the records and check the facts. But what, what Nicodemus was dealing with was, was with a, pro, a proverb, Proverbs 18 verse 13, that really lays this out in, in a way that they themselves should have known. He that answers the matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame unto him. And he's saying, if you haven't listened to him and listen to hear what he has to say, and you're just acting on, on what you want to believe, then you're foolish. You're foolish. And shame on you. And of course, what did they do to Nicodemus? They used the three tactics on him. They ridiculed him. They pressured him. And they called him ignorant. All in one statement. But interestingly enough, when they went on and say, search, search, search this out, they used the scriptures as the basis for rejecting Christ. Because they said that no scripture pointed to a prophet coming out of Galilee. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong on a number of accounts, but they were wrong on two specific accounts. They were wrong on the account that, on the count, I should say, that Jonah, the prophet, came from Galilee. He came from a place called Gath Hefer, which is actually a little bit north of Nazareth. Now, if Nazareth is already in Galilee and Gath Hefer is, in, is north of Galilee, uh, I'm sorry, north of Nazareth, then <laughs> it's, in, it's in Galilee. Because Galilee was in the northern region. And they probably just forgot about Elijah who was from Tishba, which was in the Galilee. And because, his, and because his, his ministry was to the northern kingdom of Israel, which was in the Galilee. Just, just thought I'd mention that. The second count that they were wrong in is that God can raise up prophets from anywhere he chooses. God can raise up prophets anywhere. And so, as we come to a close here, we end where we began. The acknowledgement that one cannot be neutral about Jesus. You see, the truths 
about Jesus as Lord, Savior, Messiah, are not to be considered as secondary to everything else in life. I want to repeat that statement because it it impacted me in in thinking about these things. in light of the lack of the seriousness that there needs to be in the church about what Jesus Christ came to do. May I say again, the truths about Jesus as Lord, Savior, Messiah, and of course any other number of characteristics and attributes of Jesus, but the truths about Jesus as Lord, Savior, Messiah are not to be considered as secondary to everything else in life. We have to remember the cross. We have to remember the wonderful words that are given to us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We never focus on the word perish as much as we should but if we don't believe on Jesus we'll perish. And that's a serious thing. The cross was a serious thing. The shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins was a serious thing because it was the offering for us. The offering of the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The the resurrection of Jesus from a tomb to leave it empty is a serious thing for us to remember. Sometimes in the church we make other things more important than that. Nothing's more important than what Christ came to do for us. Nothing is more important. And nothing is more important than hearing the promises of Jesus to say, I'm coming again. Half of the church today, or more than half of the church today, doesn't really care about that. Again, this is for another time, but, but folks, it's serious business. And I leave you with John 3.36 because of the seriousness of what Jesus said. He said, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believeth not, notice this, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's serious. Who wants that on anyone? Whether friend or foe, whether family or or whoever. It's not for us to wish that. That's judging. The very fact all of us are sinners. And this is again the importance of faith. The importance of a faith that is not just a mental assent to truth facts. Oh yeah, I believe them. Well, then that's good. The devils also believe. And they tremble. It's time for us to tremble at the holiness of God. And it is the very same God that is holy, 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 that has loved us so much that he gave us Jesus Christ. Let's be serious about that as we prepare to leave today. I want you to leave here not just with the the knowledge about Jesus, I want you to leave with Jesus. 
I want you to leave with Jesus in your heart. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would just move on you and on your hearts today to think about these things and to realize that it isn't enough just to say, well, I believe this because there is a faith that can be dead. James chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the light of your word shining upon us and how we pray, Lord, that you would speak to every heart that is here today in need of salvation, in need of getting beyond just the, the facts and the truth of the facts and getting to the heart of the matter, getting to the very heart of the knowledge that Christ has done many powerful things to provide a way of salvation, a way of escape from the bondage of sin and death. And that is through the work of Christ on the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, may that be stirred up in the hearts of each person here today and in their minds as well. And connect, Lord God, their hearts and their minds together so that they will confess the Lord Jesus with their mouth and believe in their heart that he has risen from the dead. For in this, your word says, they shall be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand?